The rest of us are in the gospel according to Luke. That's where we find ourselves again this morning. Uh, we are now in chapter 6, moving, not real slow, but taking our time. Uh, love walking with Jesus and, and just seeing his work uh, and his ministry. And actually, as, as you open up your Bibles, there's Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, there's our gift to you. Um, as we open up to chapter 6, and Carl read the passage for us, uh, we've come to a very important passage, a very important time period in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to name his 12 apostles. Just a quick overview. I remember back in chapter 4, Jesus baptized, was baptized by John. He's led uh, by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy, the devil. It was a time of training and preparation as Jesus is going to launch after that temptation into his earthly ministry. And we saw during that temptation, uh, the new and better Adam, Jesus, unlike Adam in Genesis 3, defeats the devil and overcomes temptation. Remember that the enemy tried to get Jesus to, to sin and worship him, to, Jesus to rebel and abandon his divine commission, his salvific mission of salvation to the world, to die as an atonement for sin. Uh, and the first Adam, also known as the Son of God, we saw that was tempted by Satan and did not obey the word of the Lord. Israel, also known as the Son, God's Son, was tested in the wilderness, and they just grumbled and, and, and you know, disbelief and ran to idolatry. But now we see in the, the second Adam, the eternal Son of God, where Adam failed and Israel failed, the true and better Adam was faithful. They rebelled. Jesus submitted to the Father and went through that temptation without sinning, defeating the enemy. And then he launched from that his preaching ministry, teaching, preaching, and healing ministry. Pastor Ricky did a great job last week, and he said that it was anticipated, it was expected, because remember, Jesus was home in Nazareth. He opened up uh, the scroll. He found the place in Isaiah 61, and he said, when the, when the anointed one comes, when Jesus comes, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit he was to proclaim good news to the poor, chapter 4. He will be sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the Lord's grace. That was, that was the, 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 you know, the ministry of Jesus just getting started. This is what's going to happen. The anointed king has come, and Jesus sat down. Remember, he said, this scripture has been fulfilled in me. The anointed king has come. The inaugurated the kingdom has come. He's begun restoring and redeeming God's people in all of creation. And the king has been proclaiming his kingdom by taking authority. We saw that over all kinds of things. Demonstrating his kingly authority and power as he taught the word of God over evil spirits, over sicknesses, over illnesses, over creation itself, over defilement of a leper. Jesus even demonstrated kingly authority as the Son of Man as he healed a paralytic and forgave him of his sins. Last week we saw him take authority over the Sabbath. Again, Pastor Ricky said, rightly so. The Sabbath, as with all the rest of the law, finds its ultimate fulfillment and completion in the person and the work of Jesus. The Sabbath was necessary time of rest that points forward to the ultimate rest only to be found in Christ, end quote. And throughout his teaching and preaching and healing ministry, we've seen also Jesus calling people to repent, to turn from their sins, and to follow him. It's a call of discipleship. 
Being a Christian is being a disciple, a follower of Christ. They're not separate things. And now we see opposition is rising, mounting against Jesus, and Jesus presses into this opposition and by his, his own divine authority calls and begins to prepare these 12 men. These 12 men who will form a new community to take the mission of redemption to the world. Very important. Chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. And what we will do, we'll just see this in three movements, three headings. The preparation prayer, the apostolic appointment, and finally the mentored ministry of Jesus. So as we look at chapter 6, verse 12, I, again, I just want to mention to you again the context. The context of opposition. If you remember, Jesus was in Nazareth. He opened the scroll. I just mentioned that. And we saw that the people in the synagogue, it says all the synagogue, took Jesus out and wanted to throw him off a cliff. Okay? Not very nice and not a warm welcome at all. In chapter 5, Luke tells us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or, the, or I should say the scribes, came from every village in Galilee, Judea, and even from Jerusalem. To hear Jesus teach, preach, and see the miracles he was doing. Now, they did not come because they were excited about it. They came so they could trap him. They tried to trap him, to, to show him to be the fraud and a false messiah. So Jesus was causing a lot of commotion as his popularity continued to grow. And after hearing, uh, excuse me, after healing and forgiving a paralytic man, you remember they accused him of blasphemy punishable by death. Things are getting bad. And then last week, as Jesus healed on the Sabbath, it says they, 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 they were looking for reasons to accuse him, verse 7 of chapter 6. And then in verse six, chapter 6, verse 11, the last verse of that section, it says, but they, the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, were filled with fury and discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Opposition is mounting against Jesus. And notice what the next verse says. Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. He didn't go home and get his weapons. <laughs> like, yeah, it's getting pretty bad. I better defend myself. He goes into the mountain to pray. It was at this particular and crucial time, while experiencing hostility and opposition against the religious leaders, he goes off to the mountain to pray. Now we know he also went there to, to pray to the Father about choosing these 12 men to begin this in training, to, to carry the gospel once he is gone. But as we read the gospel accounts, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see this pattern in the life of Jesus. This is the third time that Luke mentions that Jesus went off to pray. He said in chapter 4, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Likewise, in the busyness that came from ministering to a large crowd, Luke says in chapter 5, Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place and prayed. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, understood that if he was going to complete to continue and successfully complete his mission to die for sinners, it was necessary for Jesus to get away for private prayer. He's often under tremendous amount of pressure as he is entering cities and towns, making himself 
very available to everyone who is there. And he's under a amount of pressure, healing people and teaching. And over and over we see Jesus doing what? Withdrawing from his work, his ministry, withdrawing and escaping from his enemies to find quietness, to find solitude and communion with his Father. That's what he's doing. Jesus, in his true humanity, humbled himself, realized that in this very, very strategic time in ministry, that it was time to pray. Fully God, always, never ceased to be God. He submitted himself to that which God the Father desired him to do. So God the Son goes, God to, goes to God the Father and, and seeks his face, seeks his will, and to do what the Father wants in the midst of this crisis. He goes into the mountain. All night, it says, he continued in prayer. Very particular phrase being used here for Luke, only once found in the New Testament. And interesting enough, it implies that Jesus speaks to God not so much for the sake of talking, but to listen. And Jesus, our Lord, sought the will of the Father in this all-night prayer vigil, waiting and wanting to be with his father and wanting to make the right choices. How much more do we need? How much more do you and I need to be in prayer before we make decisions in our life? Pressure, opposition, major decisions drives King Jesus to prayer, to fervent, dependent prayer. That's how he deals with conflict. That's how he deals with opposition, I should say, and decision-making. How do we deal with pressures of our life? Is the first go-to worry? Or prayer? How do we deal with major decisions? Do we get on our knees? That's the first thing that we do is seek the Father's will. The eternal Son of God, who is with God and who is God, John 1, needed to meet with his Father. How much more do we need to meet regularly with the Father in the mountains of intercessory prayer? Family, this is a rebuke to me. I need to pray more. Praying for wisdom. Asking for his will to be done. Praying for the mission. That's, we talk about the mission all the time. Of making disciples who make disciples. Prayer realigns our will with his will, our agenda to his agenda. We need to be in prayer. On Monday night, the men are meeting, as uh, some of you know, you're here, are going through a book called Disciples, uh, Discipline excuse me, of a Godly Man by Kent Hughes. In it, he writes this. In the Holy Spirit-directed prayer, we will think God's thoughts after him. His desires will become our desires. His motives, our motives. His ends, our ends. If Jesus prayed, how can we expect to accomplish anything if we don't? The decision before these 12 men, surrounded by opposition, was of a huge a huge importance for the nation, Israel, and for the church. Remember, Jesus' popularity is growing, but so is his opposition. And by this time, there are a lot of people 
interested. There has disciples, and there are, there are a lot of, uh, of people following Jesus. And maybe he went up and he's praying, and maybe as his, maybe there was 30, 40, 50 close to Jesus, and he, he brought each one of them before the Father. This one, this one, we don't know. Waiting, though, on the Father's direction. Jesus will say in his high priestly prayer before his death in John 17, he says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I'm one with the Father. He also said this in John, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. That, that, that's done through prayer. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus had the word. And Jesus had prayer. The eternal son. The creator. The sustainer of all things. The alpha and the omega. The beginning and the end. The one whom all things are moving toward. And in him all things will culminate. Could not live apart. From dependent prayer. Let that sink in for a minute. Foolish and silly of me, of any one of us, to think we could be not in prayer. Regular prayer. Haughtiness. To think Jesus needed it, but I don't. I mean, you know, again, that's, uh, I, I, I see that. I feel that. I see that. I feel that. I'm not, I, and, and, and I have this in my notes. I don't want to be that pastor that guilt you into praying. Jesus prayed, you need to do it. I, I don't want to be that guy. I want to see the joy of it, that the Father's waiting to hear from his children. I want to be encouraged that Jesus is enjoying his time with his Father, and we get to just get on our face before and talk to the creator and ruler and reigning king of the universe who hears our prayers. Isn't that much better? Be encouraged to see King Jesus' independent prayer. Now, before we move on, Ken Hughes has this in his book, too, and I just want to share this with you. I thought it was good. He asks these questions, and you can share this in community group. Do you find it difficult, do you find it difficult to find enough time and a quiet place away from interruptions for your prayer times? Do you find it difficult? And then he says this, why? Is it because your life is too busy or... Are there conflicting loyalties you prefer to ignore? <laughs> what can you do? What can I do? What can we do practically to pray more frequently and be better prepared for prayer times when they come? End quote. It's something to think about. Praying in community groups. Praying in private. Praying with your family. Just being in prayer. Dependent prayer as Jesus was. Now, as we get the apostolic appointment, Jesus calls his disciples to himself. And we see this in chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, verse 13. Calls his disciples, chose them 12. He's, he's, he's again, opposition is, 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 is there. He comes down, the day is done. He's prayed all night. He calls his disciples to himself. We're not sure how many there were at the time. We could safely assume, it says in verse 12, there was a great crowd. Having spent the night in prayer, Jesus is ready now to name his 12. You can almost see it, right? You can almost see it. Jesus comes down. There's a large crowd of disciples, and Jesus is walking through the disciples in the crowd, and he's like, um, Peter? No, nope, not you, not you. Andrew? 
James, no, excuse me, not you, not you, not you. And, he, and he's calling 12 out among this crowd of disciples. And, and, and as he's picking them, as he's naming them, the 12 out of this group, someone yells out, hey, what about my son? Does he get a trophy? No, I, I couldn't help myself. But not everyone was chosen. He walked past some people, didn't make the cut. Jesus doesn't, like, ask for a consensus. He doesn't take a vote. He chooses 12 men among his disciples, and he names them. Mark chapter um, 3 says this. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. The word appointment or appointed is an important word. It means to make or to cause or to create. Reminds me of, of Corinthians, right? Any man be in Christ, what? He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's a, a newness when Christ calls us, names us. We're following him. Now, remember that there's a difference between a disciple and an apostle. And I, I want to talk a little bit about this. Remember, a disciple is what? A learner. A student. Okay? Not the kind of student that shows up in a classroom taking notes. He's a learner, a real learner, a doer who, who walks with his teacher and doing what the teacher does. And Jesus calls his disciples, his followers, to follow him. And out of his disciples, he calls 12 men. So, every apostle is a disciple, but not every disciple is an apostle. Okay? Make sense? But the principle is simple, right? You have to be with Jesus. You have to be a, a follower of Jesus. You have to, to be with him in order to be given a task, a missional task, because these men were called apostles, right? So before they could be sent out, which we'll see that, to, to demonstrate and declare the gospel with authority and power, they have to be brought in and become disciples and followers of Jesus. Critical, critical. That's, that's the way God operates, right? He calls us to follow him, to repent of our sins, to put our faith in him, and then to follow him and learn from him, and then he sends us out. God called Moses in that burning bush, come, go, tell Pharaoh, let my people go so they can worship me. God tells Abraham in a pagan land, come, Abraham, come to me, now go out of this pagan land to a place I will show you. Isaiah, Taken up in the throne room. See the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. Holy, 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 as the seraphims declare to each other. He gets, his sins atone. And what does God say? Go to my people. Paul, the apostle, knocked off the horse on his way to persecute Christians. And while he's blind and confused, God says to Ananias, go see Paul, the one who's killing Christians. I have chosen him as an instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. He will go. Is ascending after there is coming in. Follow, then go. And God calls us in, then sends us out. And in verses 14 through 16, he's given us the, names, the name of these 12 men he appoints as apostles. Now, let's talk about apostles for a moment. Okay? There, there, there seems to be Every few years, this resurfacing of this apostolic ministry or the apostles, and you have these P 
people you see, them, oh, this apostle's coming to this church, this apostle's coming to that church, okay? The word apostle comes from the Greek verb apostolo, means to send, a messenger. They are the sent ones. And the idea of having apostles is, is not something new with Jesus. It's traced back to the Aramaic, uh, which is the common language of Israel. It's not like Jesus had these apostles and no one knew who they were or what they were until Jesus appointed them. That's not what happened. There was a Jewish institution called the Sanhedrin. Some of you know that you see it all over in the New Testament. The Sanhedrin was a body of 70 men in Jerusalem that had all kinds of authority, had a tremendous amount of authority and power. And the Sanhedrin had what's called a shalea, which is the word apostle in Aramaic, same thing. And this shalea, this official uh, delegating uh, group called the shalea, the apostles of the Sanhedrin, would be sent out by the Sanhedrin to different places in Israel and around Israel. And what would happen is the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel, would send them with their authority and their power to, to um, settle legal disputes, to dispute the things of the law. They would, they would, uh, the Sanhedrin would, would say, hey, this is, this is the official uh, place, or this is the official, um, uh, what we think and what we say about the law, and they would send the shalea, they would send the apostles out to deal with uh, disputes, religious disputes. So everyone understood when Jesus called the 12 apostles to himself that Jesus was saying, I will have my own apostles, my own shalea. I will have my own uh, 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 apostles, just like the Sanhedrin, ones that will bear my authority, ones that will bear my power, my teaching, that will go as my official representatives. Everyone in Israel understood that. And the question that we hear today is, are there apostles today? And the answer is simply yes and no. <laughs> there are no longer official office of the apostles, those who have the same authority as these 12. The disciples and the apostles of Jesus understood that. In fact, if you turn to Acts chapter 1, you will see after Judas dies, they gather together everyone else and they say, we need to choose someone in his place and he needs to be someone who is with Jesus, sort of the ministry, uh, knows of the resurrection, bear witness of his resurrection. He needs to be that guy to fill Judas's place. So unless the person who claims to be an apostle is 2,000 years old, he's not the capital A apostle. The scriptures make it very clear that the original 12 apostles given the authority and power of Jesus were the foundations of the church having their names written on the stones of the wall of the new city of Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 21. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. Very clear. They were foundation of the church. They were the first spiritual leaders of the church. Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, Paul writes, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets were given divine revelation. Only them, Ephesians 3 again. Paul says, when you read this scripture, you will perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, 
which was not made known to the sons of men in the other generations, as it has been known now, revealed, how? Through his apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, not hidden anymore, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The apostles did not preach a human message, but a divine message. They were the foundations of the church. They were recipients and receivers of direct revelation, the unfolding mystery of Christ, which was preached, and now we have here. That building metaphor is clear. The apostles and prophets described as the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. So, if you run into someone or you're visiting someone and they call themselves an apostle, capital A, with that authority, just do as Forrest did. Run. <laughs> now, there's an argument. There are other apostles in the church. Um, excuse me one second. Let me just move this. Uh, Titus is called a messenger, apostolos, uh, Barnabas. Or other people. They're small A's. They're, they're, they are sent into new mission fields. We can call church planners, maybe, if you want to want to use that term. I don't like to use that, but in a small case A, yes, they're, they're sent. That's what apostolos means, to sent. They're messengers. Maybe they're going into new land or new places where the gospel is not being preached. But, you know, as you think about this for a moment, if we can together, and to some degree, all of us should be functioning as a small A apostle. We're sent. We're the sent ones. You know where the word missionary comes from? It's the Latin word missio. You know what the Greek word is? Apostolos. It's where we get the word missionary from. We're the sent ones. We're all missionaries to declare and demonstrate the gospel. We hear it all the time here at King's Chapel. So when we tend to think that missionaries are those people who, who, who get trained and then sent overseas, or they're church planters, the problem with that limited view of missionaries is not biblical. Jesus said in John 17, John 20, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you into the world. Matthew 28, very familiar. Go, he's telling the church. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? As a missionary. Just demonstrating, declaring the gospel, calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, discipleship, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's why here at King Chapel, we feel very strongly that the scriptures support and teach that every single follower of Christ is doing what Christ is doing, and that is ministry, loving others, and telling them about Christ. Telling them to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus. Whether it's in a foreign land, and we honor those that have left families and, and have gone overseas, we should honor them. But... We're all called in as followers and sent out to live missionally. Another word we like to use here. Living missionally. Living missionally means we take the unchanging gospel, the unchanging gospel, and look to incarnate in the culture that we live in for the cause of Christ and the gospel. We, we will seek to understand people in their culture. We'll seek to understand and learn the questions of the culture. We'll seek to understand and learn the views, the hopes, the dreams of the culture so that we can build a bridge so that we can reach people with the gospel in a particular culture, Glenmont, New York. 
proclaiming the unchanging truth in a very changing cultural context. The message doesn't change. But we have to build bridges. We have to understand culture. We have to understand people if we're going to make that bridge and we're going to be able to share with them the truth of the gospel. So this appointment to the official office of the apostles, a very special one-time appointment, but the function as apostles, as being the sent ones, in a very, very broad sense, really all of us are ones who are being sent. And Jesus chooses these 12, this special appointment, to some unqualified people as far as the culture is concerned. He doesn't choose the Pharisees, he doesn't choose the, the rabbis, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests. He chooses fishermen. He chose Levi, Matthew, who was, when we talked about this, a tax collector. He cho- Can you imagine Jesus getting to the end, looking at Judas, knowing, not going to end well, and choosing him as an apostle. Ordinary folk. Ordinary folk. What's striking, if you look at the list, it begins with Peter who denied him and ends with Judas who betrayed him. These are the men he selected. And what's important is not their credentials. What's important was what? They received the sovereign election of God. In fact, the words called and chose are emphasizing the authority of Jesus. It it, it signifies divine election. Jesus chose them. And Jesus is reminding everyone, just like Moses when he came down from the mountain, It's kind of a Moses picture with the 12 tribes that he was forming a new community. A new nation, a new people, a new community of God. 12 sons of Jacob, now we have the 12 apostles establishing the foundation for God's new people in Christ. And to this day, the church rests on their foundation, the scriptures, as Jesus the cornerstone. Dr. Darrell Bach says, the 12 represented something new and something parallel to Israel. The new community is both distinct from and connected to God's promises for the nations. I couldn't agree more. Not replacement, but a continuation. Chose the 12, sent the 12, and sends us into the world. And lastly, in verse 17, Jesus descends from the mountain to a level place. The King James has to a plain, P-L-A-I-N. A place where people can gather. And they come, look at verse 18, for three reasons. To hear the teaching, to hear the gospel being preached. Number two, to be healed of their diseases. And number three, to be set free from the captivity of the evil one. I hope that sounds familiar. It's exactly what he said he was going to do. Back in Nazareth when he opened up the scroll. Proclaim the gospel, bring healing upon diseases, and set people free. What is interesting is, and I want to I put this uh, synoptic gospel, Mark and Matthew, out. When Jesus names them in those two accounts, Mark 3 and Matthew 10, you could see his reference there is that he's sending them. That they might be with him and he might send them. See that? Calling them in, sending them out to have authority. Verse 10 uh, 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 chapter 10, verse 1, Matthew, he called the 12 disciples, gave, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So not only do we see this special and unique authority given to the apostles, but now we see in the context that Jesus, as we see in, in Luke, is calling these apostles, getting ready to send them out, and then he gathers this crowd together. What is he doing? 
He's mentoring them by showing them what he expects them to do. Teaching, healing, preaching, declaring the kingdom of God. He's showing and mentoring his disciples. As he calls them, he shows them, and, he, and he's mentoring, he's serving them. Now, now, the crowd that came to a level place, uh, you have the 12 apostles, the first time that Jesus now has his 12 with him, um, and publicly, you know, just standing with him. You got the official capacity of those 12 men. Then it says also they had a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people. Notice what it says, verse 17, all Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Okay? And it may not mean much to you, but let me tell you what that's signaling. There are Gentiles there. In fact, there's a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus in Jesus' day. He calls those two places, Tyre, the city of Tyre and Sidon, our bitterest enemies. Pagan cities often labeled in the Old Testament, these two cities, as oppressors of Israel. Luke just throws that in there. All Judea and Jerusalem. Oh, by the way, there were people there from Tyre and Sidon. Why? Because Jesus' mission is to where? The world. He's setting it up. He's going to say in chapter 6, verse 27, that we are to love our enemies. This, the presence, their presence, sets the tone for that demand that he places on his disciples. And, and like the men who came, who, who remember, he lowered the, the men who lowered the man from the ceiling for, for a healing, and they got more than what they bargained for. They got forgiveness of sins. These people came for healing, but they're going to get a lot more. We're going to see that over the next few weeks. We're going to see Jesus teach us, them and us, what it looks like to be a disciple. He doesn't do it in a secret place. He doesn't do it behind closed doors. Jesus teaches us over the next few weeks, we'll see, what it means to be a disciple in plain speech, in plain view, as King James says, on the plane. This is what it looks like. This is what's required. We're going to see that over the next couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to it. But before demands, before Jesus places his demands on his disciples, he exhibits power, authority, and grace by healing without discrimination. Notice what it says there, right? For power came out from him, and, and all the crowd sought to touch him, uh, even earlier. And those who were troubled, unclean spirits, were cured. Before that, who came to hear and to be healed for their diseases. Jesus is touching and healing people indiscriminately he combines deeds and words he's proclaiming the gospel he is healing people remember it's a demonstration of king jesus the power of king jesus the the inauguration of the king remember when the king is a foretaste when king jesus comes back there'll be no leprosy there'll be no diseases there'll be no pain there'll be no sin there'll be no uh, cancer that's all going to be gone and they're getting a foretaste and Jesus will say in chapter 11, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what Jesus is doing is he's going to take these 12 men, we'll see this later on, and he's going to give them his authority, he's going to give them his power to go and heal, to go and deliver people who are under demonic oppression. Luke chapter, Luke, excuse me, Luke who wrote the book of Acts, says in Acts chapter 2 that signs and wonders were done by the apostles. It says this, chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves, that's the church, to the apostles' teaching, 
that's the 12, 11, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Okay? In other words, getting a little foretaste of what the kingdom is all about. Now, remember who these 12 men are. Ordinary folks. Who would believe their message? The fishermen are going to be preachers. The tax collector, really? Going to tell us about God? They had credentials. That's what this was all about. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs, wonders, and mighty works. In other words, God did the work of miracle signs and wonders, listen, to confirm the validity of the apostles' witness and connect them with the ministry and healing ministry of Jesus. That's where the apostles connect with Christ. There are others that did signs and wonders we see in Scripture, Stephen and Philip. There's no doubt. He sends out 72. We'll see that later on in Luke 10. But we must be aware, not only of the unique position these 12 are in, in the authority, but also, family, listen. Satan and false teachers do signs and wonders. Even in the Old Testament, Moses, when he was sent to the Egyptian pharaoh, his musicians were doing what? Signs, wonders, and miracles during the tribulation. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, The lawless one, by the activity of Satan, will have all kinds of power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because... They refuse to love the truth and to be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 Jesus himself warned as the end times will be characterized by deceitfulness of counterfeit prophets who will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive. Matthew 24. John the Apostle says, listen, test the spirits. 1 John 4. Don't believe every spirit. Test them whether they're from God or not. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Let, let me quickly give you three major camps when it comes to healing, okay? One camp is what's called the cessationists. Cessationists believe that all the sign gifts have ceased in the first century. Tongues, um, prophecy, and that would include signs, wonders, and healings uh, ceased with the times of the apostles. Does God heal? They would say yes, but not through the gifts of men. It's ended with the apostles. Then you have those on the other extreme that say that signs, wonders, and healing are normative. When the gospel is preached, you are to expect the normal response will be signs and wonders. The vineyard movement is, is part of that, or, or uh, John Wimber and the vineyard movement. When Jesus preached, signs and wonders should follow. It's normative. The other camp, which I find ourselves in, all the pastor elders here, is open but cautious. Martin Lord Jones sums it up well. He says, we disagree with those who say that these things were confined to the apostolic period. We disagree equally with those who say that all these things should be manifested in the church. We say that it's a matter for the sovereignty of the Spirit, end quote. That's why here at Kings, we're open, but we're cautious. We recognize deceitfulness and the lies of the enemy. We live in a broken world, and we do not expect in a broken world that it was normative. It was for that time and that period. But we are very much not, we are very much in the not yet of the kingdom. 
open but cautious. But most importantly, family, and I'll end with this thought. Most importantly, the power of God is the gospel. The scriptures are clear that we should not pursue signs and wonders. Jesus said a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Right? It, it comes from an attitude of show me more, show me more, show me more. A resistant heart, unwilling to just believe on Christ. So we're not looking for the next greatest thing. We're pursuing Jesus. We're not chasing signs and wonders. We're chasing Jesus. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God onto salvation. Not signs and wonders, the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.22, Jews demand signs, Greek seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the power of God. <laughs> signs and wonders are secondary to the work of grace, the saving work of grace. Powers and signs and wonders don't save, Jesus saves. Can miraculous things happen? We've seen God heal here at King's Chapel. Can miraculous things does happen, but we are pursuing Jesus. That's the ultimate goal. Because I will tell you, family, every single person, I say this with 100% you know, accuracy, every single person who is healed physically is going to die. You're welcome. <laughs> right? The primary and ultimate goal and the power of God is the glory of God seen and treasured in the gospel. The greatest display of the glory of God, the goodness of God, the incalculable worth of God is Jesus who is the gospel. All physical healings are temporary, no exception. But when God heals the heart and forgives the heart and renews the heart in salvation, that's eternal. There's an inward change that's never lost. It goes on forever and ever and ever. That's the greatest thing. That's the greatest healing. The brokenness of humanity and spiritual sickness, evil and sin being forgiven. That's where it starts. The power of the physical healing is just a, a picture, a guarantee of what the church is declaring through the gospel. You could be healed eternally by what? Repent, follow me. No matter the sign or wonder or even the healing, the greatest and most necessary miracle that God can do is the miracle of regeneration. Let me tell you, that's eternal. Forgiveness of sin. But we see here, I think, what we could take away, I think one of the, the, the timeless truth or the, the timeless principles for a missional church like ours who are, who are seeking the lost, who are looking to share the gospel, is that the essence of our ministry is what Jesus is doing here is having compassion on people. Showing mercy to those who are in need. Meeting needs. Helping hurting people. Sharing Christ with them. Revealing the heart of God in salvation. God cares for the people who are hurting and suffering. God cares for the poor and sick. God cares for the children. Jesus always had care and concern and compassion for children, for the poor, for the needy. Not just with words, but with deeds. And we are to go in, in the grace of God and serve and help people in need, which will open the door to share with them the truth of eternity. To be reconciled to God by turning from their sins and putting their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what begins this section of Scripture. What it looks like to follow. What it looks like to be mentored and to do what the Savior does. 
loving people, caring for people, meeting needs, and, and declaring the truth of the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. And then next week we'll look and get a little bit deeper as Jesus looks out over his disciples um, in verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, and he's speaking to his disciples. And we'll pick that up next week. But let me end with this as the band comes up. Let me end with this verse. I love this verse. We preached through the gospel according to John a couple years ago. And John gives us the purpose of his book. Nice and easy. You don't have to search for it. John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that were not written in this book, but the signs that he gave us are written in this book. So what? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The end is God. The purpose, God. Salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation. Family, we're in, a, we're, in a, we're in a place in our country, we're in a place in our nation, we're in a place in our community where we are given an opportunity to love people and point them to Jesus Christ. No matter what their response may be toward us, stay focused on him, the mission, look to love, look to care, look to have compassion, and look to tell for others about Jesus. He's calling people to repentance, to follow him. And he's going to use us as the means by which the gospel message will go out. All we have is Christ. That's all we need. He's our only hope and he's our sure hope. Let's pray together. <sighs> Father, thank you for this time together in your word. Help us, Lord, to, out of joy, out of salvation, out of gratitude, spend time in prayer with you. We want to hear from your children. Let it begin with me. And God, we pray that you would stir our hearts, that this world is not our home, and that, Lord, you have called us in, and you're sending us out with a message of reconciliation, ambassadors for you, and we pray, Father, that you would use us mightily for that purpose and what you're doing, seeking, saving the lost. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the work of salvation provided for us at Calvary's tree. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us in our conversation, that you would open our eyes and our heart to see the hurting around us and then give us words to speak pointing to Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen.